Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's speaker is Dr. Bo Bruce. Today, the second Sunday of Lent, our appointed gospel passage is the Transfiguration, which we also celebrate as an important holy day, a so-called feast of devotion in the Western Rite, with the same gospel reading each year on August 6th. So why has the church appointed us to reflect on this event twice in the same year? What does its celebration within the Lenten context offers, offer us that differs from its celebration in August? Like so many stories that we read in the Bible, we can too easily begin to take them for granted. I think this is particularly true of a story like the Transfiguration. Sometimes I like to think of the Transfiguration as the greatest story that might never have been told. I mean, think about it. Jesus takes you and just a couple of other people up to the top of a mountain where you have an incredible experience. You see Jesus' face shine like the sun and his clothes become the brightest white you can imagine. You hear a voice from a cloud, and you see and hear two people that are long dead talking to Jesus. So then even after the Lord is raised and the apostles have an even more seemingly ridiculous story to tell of a man raised from the dead, why would they choose to add insult to injury by retelling such a wild story? Why is this story so important that every one of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, thought it was so important to include it? If we think that people at the time of Christ were somehow less incredulous than us modern folk, we would be sorely mistaken. So there must be something more to this. I mean, imagine what would happen if you or I came down the mountain and started telling people about this. After all, Jesus charges Peter, James, and John not to tell anybody what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Oh, really, Jesus? Did you have to tell us that? We were planning to run down the mountain and tell our friends and family the minute we got down the mountain so they could lock me and all of us up in our padded cell. And Jesus, admittedly, we still don't know what you mean about risen from the dead. Are you feeling all right, Jesus? After all, you told us something about that a few days ago, but when Peter took you aside to talk with you about it, you told him, get behind me, Satan. Maybe, Jesus, you're the one that needs the padded cell. So in fact, let's dwell there on that very event because I think it's really instructive. Just before telling of the Transfiguration story in in both Matthew, who we read today, and Mark, the preceding event I just mentioned is recounted. So let me read that passage for you. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, it's Matthew chapter 16. That's chapter 16, verse 13. Give you a moment to get there. Chapter 16, verse 13. All right. So, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the powers of death shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then our transfiguration passage begins today. And in fact, I think Matthew and Mark are saying that in that statement that some of you will see the power and glory of God before they see death is talking about this, the transfiguration. So, it's a very interesting note, too, that in both Matthew and Mark, the transfiguration takes six days, specifically six days later than the event where Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. This is a very odd remark, and in fact, it's really odd for Mark, because Mark is always immediately this and immediately that, if you pay attention to his gospel. But here, six days. So, and we also know from what appears to be Peter yet again putting his foot in his mouth on the mountaintop by saying he's going to build these tabernacles, these tents uh, for Jesus, Moses, Moses, and Elijah. We know what date the transfiguration happens on. It happens on the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast is a joyful fall harvest feast that begins five days after the Day of Atonement. During the Feast of Booths, meals are eaten and, and many sleep in these temporary shelters that are built just for the feast and then torn down afterwards. They recall the agricultural connection of staying in the fields during the harvest. And they also recall the wandering in the desert for 40 years where the Israelites lived in temporary shelters, temporary tabernacles. And if you pay attention, you will see these booths sometime around late September or October outside of Jewish synagogues and homes. So it appears the specific time frame noted connects the first episode between Peter and Jesus to the Day of Atonement, six days past according to the way that you reckon time back then. So that's the, the Day of Atonement. That's Yom Kippur, the one of the holiest days of the Jewish year which according to Leviticus chapter 23 happens on the 10th day of the seventh month and would tie Christ's sacrifice on the cross discussed six days before to the day of atonement and to the important theme of humbling oneself or being destroyed from amongst one's people associated with the description of the day of atonement in Leviticus, which I urge you to, to read. So in the reckoning of days most commonly used at that time, six days later, would be the beginning of the Feast of Booths on the 15th day of the seventh month, when the produce of the land had been gathered in. 
and mirroring the fruit of the kingdom arriving with power after Christ's suffering that results in atonement, we have the transfiguration. There's another important Old Testament connection that I think is worth drawing out. Remember the telling of the history of human salvation we are hearing about in Matins that we've been talking about through this season of pre-Lent and now Lent. Well, the figures this week are Jacob and Esau. Esau. So let's recall their story and see how it connects to the one we're reading today. You may recall that Jacob and Esau were twin sons of Isaac and Rebekah. And while the two were still in Rebekah's womb, they were already fighting with each other. They didn't have to wait like mine to get out of the womb. So when Rebekah went to the Lord about this, he told her, two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Now this prophecy was emblematic of the lifelong tension between Jacob and Esau. Sometimes so strong it was an open hatred. Esau was the first to come out of the womb and thus he was entitled to the birthright inheritance. But Esau carelessly sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of red stew because he was exhausted and extremely famished one day. Esau went so far as making an oath to do so. Esau was also careless in the eyes of his parents because he selected Canaanite wives instead of Jewish wives. Now many, or they would have been like Israelite wives at that time, not even quite that. Um, But anyway, many are quick to criticize Jacob in this story because he seems to be tricking his brother. And this criticism tends to grow as you hear the rest of the story, which I'll relate in a minute. But much like if we focus too much on the prodigal son and we don't pay attention to the reaction of the prodigal son's brother, we can miss who's really in trouble here. And in this case, we should be identifying with Esau. Because we as mankind, after being given everything in the garden, betray and sell our birthright too. Because we're hungry for something that we should have been known better than to take. We, like Esau, are interested in marrying foreign wives that in the prophetic language of the Bible represents our idolatry rather than being faithful to God, rather than being forever faithful to Christ, our bridegroom. So as I tell you the rest of the story, think about how you should be less like Jacob and less mad at Jacob and realize how much more you are actually in Esau's position. So Isaac grows old. And he can no longer see well. Isaac's Esau and Jacob's dad, remember? So when Esau goes out to prepare a great meal with some of his excellent hunting, Isaac says he's going to give him his blessing that he owes him as the firstborn. However, Jacob, at the instruction of his mother, puts on his brother's clothes and covers his hands and neck with young goat skin so he'd be hairy like his brother. So as you may remember, Esau means hairy, and apparently he was, because this goat skin convinces his father Isaac that this is indeed Jacob, and uh, that this is indeed Esau, and Jacob gets the blessing. So of course, Esau shows up not long after, and surprised, Isaac, Isaac responded, who are you? And Esau's like, I'm your son, your firstborn Esau. And then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard this, 
heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. And in this story and connecting it with the transfiguration, we can see many parallels between Christ and Jacob, the father and Isaac, and again, ourselves and Esau. Jesus receives the blessing of his father in the transfiguration while he is wearing, so to speak, there's a heresy in here somewhere, so don't take me too literally, while he's wearing and covered by us, by our human nature, in parallel to the way Jacob is covered by the goatskin, which means we are the ones who were supposed to receive the blessing that was conferred on Jesus. This is my beloved son, my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. But what did we do? We squandered that away just like Esau. And Jesus will become the founder of the new Israel, just as Jacob would be the father of the historical Israel. And yet there's still more of this story. Esau, after learning what Jacob has done, immediately goes into blame and shame mode. Sound familiar? Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he's cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Like Esau, Peter says, hey, it can't happen like this. This is not right. But Isaac says, well, in fact, it can happen like this and it's going to. Behold, I've made him Lord over you and all his brothers I have given to him for servants and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What can I do for you, my son? And Esau asked yet again, please, have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O oh my father. So Esau lifted up his voice and wept, and it turns out Esau can, in fact, muster another blessing. And behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Following this blessing, Esau begins to plot how to kill his brother as soon as possible. So we know the rest of Jesus' story. In the coming weeks, his brothers will be unsatisfied with the many blessings they have received despite their carelessnesses from God, their idolatry, etc. And they will try and succeed in killing their fellow brother on a cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. But we have something here to learn from Esau. And again, we should identify with him. Instead of ultimately killing his brother Jacob, Esau ends up reconciled to him. Now, I'm sure the 20 years of Jacob's own self-imposed exile allowed things to cool off a little bit between them. But in the end, Esau did overcome the hate he had for his brother. And it says that Esau returned to his home, and he and his descendants became exceedingly rich. It seems that once Esau humbly accepted his station in life and began to more deeply understand the part that he played in his own fate, that it opened him to all those blessings that he wished he had originally received from his father. It seems likely that Esau's exceeding richness was not only something material, but something deeply spiritual. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what we, I hope, will take away from this story today. Lent is our time to have some time away from it all. It's a time for us to cool our jets. Perhaps we're angry with God for bringing this pox upon us, which, by the way, he didn't, but that's another long story, an important one. We could talk about it at length, but I don't want to keep you here all day. 
Maybe you're angry with your fellow man who thinks toilet paper is more important than common decency, but all that anger is misdirected. We need to turn that anger inside first. We need to be angry with ourselves, not in that negative beat yourself up sort of way, but in the way that arouses action and improvement, righteous anger. We need to realize that we are a much bigger part of the problem than any of us like to think we are, and Lent is a good time for doing that. We have to let go of our own assumptions that are driving our anger at the wrong party, just as Peter first rebukes Jesus rather than those plotting to kill him. We must, like Jesus' disciples, let go of everything we think we know about God and Jesus and let him show us who he really is through experience. And part of that experiential approach is embodied in an approach to theology we call, by a fancy word, apophatic theology. Apophatic means negative, a negative approach to theology. And what we mean by that is when we say God is love, we don't really mean that. Because God is so much love that the word love doesn't even begin to mean what it should when we apply it to God. So in that sense, God isn't love. But even that doesn't work. So he's super non-love and super love and so forth, and it just becomes this thing. But it isn't just a mental exercise. The point of it is we have to let go of what we believe, even about love, even about truth, even about all of these things, because God is so much more than our very concept of those words. We have to instead let go of those things and through our relationship with him, let him teach us. And again, in a relational, not a rational way, what love is. We have to let God redefine love for us and stop trying to make God fit in our little box of what we think love or whatever it is, God is. And second, although God may be completely ineffable, the good news is, is that through all of our other experiences and including the transfiguration, we see that God is right here, right there, just veiled right behind our sight. God may appear hidden to us, but he is literally everywhere. And so all we need to do is engage with him. So like Peter, who finally by letting go of everything he thought Jesus should be, did ultimately become the rock. And so we, may we become a rock to our church, to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and everyone we meet. People are going to need a firm foundation in the coming weeks. And like Paul, who had to be struck down and blinded to let go of everything he thought that Jesus was, to stop fighting him, and instead become a great apostle, may we become great apostles to all of those around us. So I urge you also, brothers and sisters, to let go of everything you think you know about God. And instead, during this Lenten season, pray. But pray quietly. Stop and listen. Stop trying to make God who you want him to be. Stop mansplaining to God. He created you after all. And start listening to him. He'll be happy to show you who he really is. And although we're not likely to be transfigured in the blink of an eye, there's no better time than today to start or restart our journey toward the goal of our Christian life, which is to be more like God. But first, 
We have to let go of our assumption, just as the disciples did it. So thereby I pray, may we be truly transformed into our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant this to us, O Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. Homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.